If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 745. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free Class 10 Myths of American History if you do enroll. And, of course, you can purchase one or 20 of my classes there. If you're listening to this on December 5th, I still have my Black Friday sale going. A little dirty little secret. So you can head on out to mcclanahanacademy.com. Use the coupon code BLACKFRIDAY2022, and you can still get that 30% off. The best way to do it, though, is to be on my email list. You, I give you links straight to the class you want to buy with the coupon code in it. So make sure you're on that email list so you can get those links and get the deals. I mean, look, I don't usually give 30% off. I've extended it out here for a little bit longer in December to let people get in on that deal so you can grab those classes for a bargain. You can also support the show by clicking on the little heart button. If you're watching on YouTube under the video, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on the support tab. You can go to anchor.fm and you can subscribe there. Lots of great ways to support the show financially. Also, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review. Leave a comment on YouTube. That helps bump the algorithm. All those ways, of course, help get people seeing and listening to the show. Send me those show requests. I do want to know what you want to hear and what you want me to talk about. And next week... The week of December 12th, which is the last week of the Brian McClanahan Show for 2022, uh, I will be doing a listener-generated episode week. So I've got four listener-generated episodes lining up. So uh, maybe yours will be there um, if you've sent me those show requests. And as I'm recording this, I haven't decided which four yet. So you could get in on that listener-generated episode week the last week of the year, which will be a lot of fun. So... Uh, as always, I enjoy what you all do with, to support the show, and I appreciate everything you do, whether it's sharing around on social media or sending me those show requests or uh, just simply commenting, whatever it is to help promote the show. So let's talk about the topic of the day, and this is a little bit of a lag. Um, Thanksgiving week was a couple of weeks ago, but after I did my little special, the crossover event between Abbeville and this and this podcast, I had a listener send me a piece from G.K. Chesterton from 1920. Now, I've never really done anything on this show on G.K. Chesterton. I mean, he's a very important figure in American, or I should say, conservatism in general, but of course, you know, paleoconservatives in the United States like G.K. Chesterton. Um, He is supremely important in the conservative intellectual tradition. And this piece is fantastic. And it's a piece that he wrote in 1920 on American history, and in particular on Thanksgiving. Now, it's not necessarily about Thanksgiving specifically, but it's about American history and this 
dichotomy that was on American shores between Virginia and Massachusetts. Now, oftentimes you hear, this, this goes back to the way we define American history from 1865 forward, or even in the period before the war, right? Both antebellum and postbellum history. The people that blast the quote-unquote lost cause myth will tell you that uh, there is no such thing as this you know, dichotomy between North and South except for slavery. That's it. That's the only thing that made these people different. And in fact, uh, in the 1980s, there was an individual a historian named uh, Edward Pesson who wrote an essay about this, talking about how similar Americans were in the 1850s and essentially driving home in his mind that the only real substantial difference was how they viewed uh, labor, whether it was free, wa free wage labor or slave labor. And if you watch the little video by Ty Sigley that he did for Prager University, he, well, he makes this case. Well, I mean, the North was also agricultural. The South was agricultural. All these people were agricultural. The only real difference was labor. Now, that's not true. <laughs> we know that's not the only real difference. We know it's not the real, only real difference because people were talking about differences between Northerners and Southerners long before the issue of slavery even became important in American history. And I say important in American history when it was actually a political issue, when it started making the rounds in the halls of Congress and people started debating the extension of the institution because that was the real issue. Is it going to be extended into the territories or not? It wasn't about whether the states were going to keep it or not because, well, look, uh, northern, northern states abolished slavery and southerners never said a word about it. And the South could have done the same thing. And northern states, for the most part, I mean, you did have some northerners who were pretty aggressive in trying to say slavery should be abolished in the South. But most northerners, if you were to poll them in 1860, would have said the South can do whatever they want with the institution. We don't care. In fact, I'll tell you, there's a pretty prominent northerner who said that. His name was Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> right? So, I mean, this was the general opinion in the United States in 1860. There were cultural differences, though, that had been there for hundreds of years, 200 years by the 1860s, 250 years. And David Hackett Fisher, in his wonderful book, Albion Seed, points this out. But you know who else talked about this? G.K. Chesterton. And I find this fascinating because he actually links it back to British or English history. And we know that the people that settled in Massachusetts were different than the people that settled in Virginia. We know we had this big civil war in England in the 1640s. The king lost his head. Uh, this was a war between the parliamentarians, the roundheads, and the cavaliers, the royalists. And you had many of these cavaliers wind up in the south. In fact, there's a really good book written about, the title is The First Gentleman of Virginia. It's, uh, Lewis Wright is the author, and he talks about who these people were. But you did have distressed cavaliers in Virginia. And even if they weren't necessarily cavalier, they weren't members of the upper class in English society, as they settled in Virginia, they had a certain culture to them that was different than those who were settling in New England, whether it was in Massachusetts or Connecticut or New Hampshire or ultimately Maine. These people were different than the people that settled in the tidewater of Virginia and then the, the low country of South Carolina and, the, and North Carolina and the people that settled in Maryland. They were different. 
Now, you also had different people settling in other parts of the United States, whether it was Pennsylvania, where you had heavy Quaker influence, also in Delaware and parts of Maryland. You also had Germans settling in certain parts of Pennsylvania, you know, the back part of Pennsylvania, the, the more mountainous region, these borderlands people. So you had all these different regional cultures. New York was a little different because of the Dutch influence. You had all these different regional cultures, and that's going to impact the way that Americans thought about what it meant to be an American. Yes, they all, most of them came from England, Albion. They came from this area, but they had different cultures based on the region where they came from in England. And again, David Hackett Fisher has done an outstanding job in Albion Seed. And then he wrote a recent book, African Founders, which does the exact same thing for black Americans that Albion Seed did for English Americans. But he also weaves that into the tale of uh, Albion Seed. He he uses the same kind of structure and talks about these regional differences and that there were essentially regional differences in black American culture in the United States. It's fascinating. Culture matters. And I've said this before on this podcast, and I've said it before in other places. I wasn't really interested in cultural history when I went to graduate school, and I wasn't really interested in cultural history when I was an undergraduate. I didn't care much about it. I thought it was kind of stupid. You know, we, well, Who cares what people wore and... Uh, what kind of utensils they used, and who cares about these things. But as I matured, of course, I mean, here I am, an 18-year-old kid, 19-year-old kid, an undergraduate, and even 21 and 22, and, you know, you're just a kid. You're, you're mentally immature in a lot of ways. As I matured and I started understanding history better and understanding this idea that culture creates politics, they, they, they are not inseparable. You can't have one without the other. Politics is an extension of culture that those things really mattered. And the folk ways, the cultural ways of a people mattered in how they thought about society and politics. I became much more interested in it. And, uh, of course, the South having a very distinct culture and New England having a very distinct culture, there's bound to be some conflict there. We know that Barclay, William Barclay, who was the governor of Virginia, hated Puritans. He hated them. Hated them. And we know the Puritans, people like... Cotton Mather and others, they hated Cavaliers. They really didn't like them. They didn't like the people that settled in Virginia. And you find this very interestingly enough in in, uh, religion and uh, how modern evangelicals, some of the modern evangelical churches, think about the founding. They gravitate towards the Puritans and the Pilgrims rather than Virginians, because they think Virginians were just a bunch of atheist heathens, or maybe they were uh, you know, Catholics, or they were, uh, of course, the Catholic Church is gone at that point, but maybe they were Anglicans. There were, there were people in Virginia, though, that were not Puritans. They weren't pilgrims, and they were different. And so it's fascinating where you get that. And, and this all comes out of the fact that the North won the war, and they really were able to put a stamp on American history that was more in line with a northern view of America than a southern view. And so I find it laughable when you have people that go on YouTube and other places and they say, yeah, you know, what we're doing right now is correcting American history because these southerners dominated American history for all these years. No, they didn't. I mean, you can go back and I mean, do a simple search, the engram searches, and look at how important people that uh, were not southerners were in the telling of the story. And uh, by the early 1900s, the general position was the South was wrong in slavery 
And uh, they, they were heroic. They fought for what they believed. But Lincoln was right. Lincoln was the person we should think about in American history. The Lincoln myth had already been codified and created. And that the North was right. The, not the South, but the North. And so that was the general trend of American history to this day. I mean, that the, the South was ever able to offer a counterweight to that in, in opposition to this Lincoln myth or that they were able to tell the story from their position. And let me tell you something. People that say the lost causers didn't talk about slavery are full of it. You go back and read it, they talk about it all the time. All the time. Th there was a larger issue to them. It was the structure of the Federal Republic that was at stake. But they all talked about all the separate issues that factored into that, and they, they do talk about slavery within that. So uh, this they're creating false dichotomies and straw men all the time. These people that go out there, and there's a number of them on YouTube, some are more popular than others. And I'm a historian. I'm going to go on YouTube and tell you what to... They, they're simply you know, parroting whatever they were told in Eric Foner's uh, you know, book on the war or Reconstruction or James McPherson's book on the war. I mean, this is what they do. Uh, this is it. Historians generally think this because I read Eric Foner. But it is true that generally historians... Even in the early 20th century, in the late 19th century, writing histories that were more in line with what we're getting today than the lost cause narrative. That Southerners were able to put up monuments shows you that they at least had some say in how the story was going to be told. But that's it. That's it. And so this, is, this war on history now is simply to take that completely out. We just want to have one narrative. That's all. Well, G.K. Chesterton blows apart this entire belief that somehow, you know, culture didn't matter. And I find this, again, to be fascinating. It's from 1920, the Illustrated London News, September 11, 1920. So the settling of America is the, t is the title of the piece. It's not long, so I'm going to go through it. It's it's really good little piece. He says, at the time of writing, the newspapers are full of paragraphs and pictures about the great historical incident of the sailing of the Mayflower. It is celebrated in eloquent and enthusiastic terms as the foundation of the great American Republic, the first establishment of the English overseas, the seed of a small colony destined to grow into a great commonwealth. Assuredly, anything would be good which established the sympathy between England and America, and the tradition of the Mayflower may at least establish the sympathy between England and some important parts of America. Now remember, he's writing this in 1920, post-World War I, so the United States has become a much stronger ally of the British, the English-speaking peoples after World War I. We're still in pre-World War II. So we're in this uh, interregnum between these two great wars. And he's saying it's a great thing that we have this alliance between America. But let's get American history right, he starts to say. Nevertheless, I am moved to make some criticisms which will nonetheless be counted heretical because... They are undoubtedly historical, <laughs> right? So if he says these are historical, they're heretical. So I'm going to make some observations that fly in the face of the myths. What do you think the people in the South who espouse the, la the lost cause are doing? They're flying in the face of the myths. They have to be their heretics. They're heretics. We have to take down their monuments. We have to destroy anything that they had. We have to call them out as stupid, dim-witted, ahistorical. I was watching one popular YouTube channel on this. Um, you've probably seen it before. I'm not even going to talk about what it is, but 
he did a, an episode on the lost cause. The whole thing was about how history is being re- is history being rewritten. Yes, it's being rewritten because you know why those Southerners out there wrote history for America for all these years. And he cites funny. He cites one book in particular that again nobody talked about until maybe it was published in 1881. Nobody talked about it until maybe the early 20th century, but. Even there, he selectively he cherry-picked some things out of it. It doesn't show you the whole picture of what the guy actually said about something. So, but if you, and he, he says, there's, there's, yeah, there's lots of different interpretations, but some of them are just wrong. Some of them are just not based on fact, and the lost cause is one of them. Well, here's Chesterton saying, well, I'm going to tell you some historical things, and they're heretical to what someone like this dope on YouTube would say. They're heretical. In other words... If you start saying things that are based also on the record, if they don't go with the mainstream narrative, which is right now in American history, it's the Lincoln myth, it's the phonerist, it's the um, the position that's advocated by you know Sigley and others, it's the woke side. If you're not in line with that, then you're heretical. For indeed, I think that this specialized exaggeration conceals a considerable danger, not only to historical truth, but actually to Anglo-American friendship. The affair of the Mayflower is not, in the larger sense, a link between England and America. It is a link between England and New England. Ah, it's not a link between, link between England and America, but England and New England. There's a whole other America out there, and it's cultural. Whatever the great Puritan emigration was, it was emphatically not the foundation of America. It was not even the foundation of English America, as distinct from Spanish America. At least a whole generation before the Calvinist quarrels, one of the adventurous antagonists of Spanish America had established the first defiant frontiers of English America. Raleigh and the Elizabethans gave to their colony a magnificent Elizabethan name, however little it may have been merited by Elizabeth. But whether or no its origin was worthy of it, the, its history was wholly worthy of it. Nothing in the American story has been more truly heroic or humane, more truly fitted to last among men as a legend, than the story of what we may still be tempted to call the great nation of Virginia. Now, if you've followed the Abbeville Institute channel on YouTube as well, and of course I do a lot with them, um, you know we have something we're working on called the 1607 Project. This is it. This is G.K. Chesterton in 1920 saying, Virginia first. Virginia is what we should think about when we think of America. Not New England, Virginia. But you see what happens with the 1860s. And Susan Mary Grant, who is no, in, no lover of the South at all, wrote a little book entitled North Over South. And her entire position is essentially that when the North won the war, they, they dominated the history. But that would fly in the face of what all these dopes on YouTube are saying. No, no, so, South rewrote. South wrote the history. This is the South just wrote all this stuff. This, all these misconceptions we have about the, about the war, it's all because the South dominated everything. Susan Mary Grant blows all that apart. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's laughable. These positions are so laughable. That there is any type of dissent, you can't, you can't deviate from New England. And this one YouTuber in particular that I'm talking about has done an entire video on how great the Puritans were and how fantastic uh, New England was and giving us all these progressive and humane things in American history. 
Missing a lot of stuff, of course, that the Puritans did. But Chesterton continues, he says, It is a commonplace to say that Virginia was the very throne of the authority of the Revolution. From Virginia came Washington, its hero, and Jefferson, its prophet. The state was known as the mother of presidents. It was felt as sort of as a sort of council chamber of the fathers of the republic. Not to follow its pivotal political history through a thousand other things, it is enough to say that in the Civil War, the adherence of Virginia to the side of local patriotism, which happened to be the losing side, was certainly the fact which almost turned it into the winning side. So look at what he says here. It was local patriotism that kept Virginia in the Confederacy. Local patriotism. That almost brought it to the winning side. Local patriotism. He's not saying it was because of slavery. or This is a man writing in England. Chesterton. He's not a Southern apologist at all. He's just writing what he, how he looks at it. This is what we had. I'm writing this dispassionately across the Atlantic, and I can see what was going on here. In Virginia, in that dark hour, arose the greatest of American generals, who was perhaps the noblest of Americans. Oh my gosh, G.K. Chesterton just gave us the Robert E. Lee myth. <laughs> Is he being influenced by Southerners? Obviously, these, uh, these lost cause narratives have gotten to G.K. Chesterton and he's read them. He's obviously already read Douglas Southall Freeman, who hasn't published the book on Lee yet, but hey, who cares? He's already, I mean, he must be secretly sending brainwaves across the Atlantic to Douglas Southall Freeman. But he's, but uh, the, the opponents will say, oh, I'm sure he's read Thomas Nelson Page. He's read these people. He's read these Southerners who are out there talking about all this stuff. And these people are just lying all the time. You know, this is what it is. They lie. It, it, the whole point for these dopes on the other side is that they lied. But they didn't. They didn't lie. If you go back and carefully read what they wrote, they're not saying anything really alien to what the other side would be saying. It's just that they said we were, we believed we were right in what we were doing, and that was that. And we believed we were fighting for, as Chesterton says, local patriotism, independence, self-determination. That's what we were doing. I really cannot imagine why a history that begins with Raleigh and ends with Lee and incidentally includes Washington, should not be utterly swept aside, I'm sorry, should be utterly swept aside and forgotten in favor of a few sincere but limited nonconformists who happen to quarrel with Charles I. Listen to that statement again. Let me read that again because I butchered part of it. I really cannot imagine why a history that begins with Raleigh and ends with Lee and incidentally includes Washington should be utterly swept aside and forgotten in favor of a few sincere but limited nonconformists who happen to quarrel with Charles I. I mean, that's such a beautiful phrase. Why should we sweep aside all this beautiful Southern history in favor of a bunch of you know, outcasts who didn't get along with anybody who settled in New England and didn't even know what to do, who almost starved to death? Why should we? Why should we sweep aside Virginia in favor of Massachusetts? There's no logical reason for it at all. At all. But yet, this is what we do on a regular basis. 
He says, but the case is really even stronger than this. How can you get even stronger than that? But he does. He makes the case. I have said that it is a serious blunder in any case to think of America merely as an extension of England. It may do us very deadly harm if we do not understand in time the attitude of Irish or Italian elements to say nothing of the Jewish or German elements. It is also fatal to forget that the whole national legend was founded on a revolt against England and therefore on a mood that regarded England not only as an enemy but as a foreign enemy. Most Americans, after the War of Independence, were in about as much mood to regard America as an extension of England as a Scot the day after Bannockburn was in a mood to regard Scotland as an extension of England. In a general sense, therefore, it would be not be wise to compliment even the Puritan states merely as the most English states of the Union. Anybody will be much mistaken who translates New England merely as renovated England. Nobody certainly would describe New England as Merry England, the polity which the Pilgrim founders founded was in some ways very un-English, even in its virtues. <laughs> this is what I was talking about with the, the piece I did or the, the talk I gave during Thanksgiving week on this very different element of New England. New England is the odd section. It always has been. It's always been the odd. In fact, we shouldn't have Southern Studies classes, and uh, I give credit to Clyde Wilson for saying this. We should call the North the Deep North. We should have Northern Studies classes. Why are these people so strange? Why were they such weirdos? And what do they do? There was a post on Twitter, and it said, you know, what is the most destructive? Can you tell me the most destructive thing in American politics? Yeah, leftists. More importantly, progressive Puritan leftists who come out of this tradition. This is what the it's the most destructive thing out there. It always has been. He says its fixed theology, its fanatical faith, and above all, its rigid and ruthless logic were not native to the mass of Englishmen, which these exiles left behind. They were more like a byproduct of France, where Calvin arose. <laughs> these are people were more like the French, not English. I mean, there's a reason why Charles II was the Merry Monarch, right? He was a good time. The good times come back. The Puritans are gone. We, we dig up Oliver Cromwell. We, you know, we mutilate his body, even though he's dead. We bring back the king. We have a good time again in England. We celebrate Christmas. Whereas these pilgrims and Puritans, they don't celebrate Christmas. They don't like anything fun. It has to be done away with. They were still more like a product of Scotland, where Calvinism could become a popular institution. A society over which the mania of witch burning swept like a prairie fire was surely not especially stamped with the spirit of Chaucer or Dickens. That there was also a heroic side of the Puritans is perfectly true, but it is hardly in the manner of the most English heroes, such as Nelson or the Elizabethan sailors. Now, there was one place where this English spirit did largely survive, and that was in the older state founded by the Elizabethan sailors. So Virginia was more like England than anything else. It was the most English of all things. The other place is weird. These people are weird in New England. What are they doing? The squires, the sports, the manners and humors of Virginia were much more like those of an English country. Washington was much more like an ordinary English gentleman than Benjamin Franklin. It is easier to imagine Washington drinking wine at the English Inn in Sussex I cannot so easily call with a picture of his making a night of it with Dr. Franklin there. Already one feels there might have been begun to creep over Franklin's soul the appalling shadow of prohibition. 
So Franklin wasn't going to savor a little glass of wine. He was going to be some kind of nasty reformer. and come out and get rid of all fun things. Of course, these characteristics were not peculiar to Virginia. A great deal could be said about South Carolina and the genius of Calhoun. <laughs> Can you imagine? Here we are 100 years ago, right? 1920, a little over 100 years ago. Can you imagine anybody in a popular paper writing the genius of Calhoun today? So this was not just Virginia. This was also South Carolina. Or about those wild western states whence came the great soldier and demagogue Andrew Jackson. But the reader need not feel no alarm lest I should launch into a detailed history of all the states of the Union. The ignorance which so often expurgates and selects the subjects of journalism would alone restrain me. I have only a very superficial journalistic knowledge of the Amer history of America. But I say that even a superficial journalistic knowledge ought to be enough to prevent anybody from saying that the Mayflower expedition was the sole foundation of America or from talking as if the northeast corner of that mighty continent was alone to be considered. The Mayflower is doubtless a beautiful fragment blossom, but I do not think that it should overshadow and hide from all view the, all the flowers and fruits of the earth, from the vines of California to the orange groves of Florida. More remains to be said in the future both about the quarrel of Puritans and Cavaliers in England and the quarrel of the Puritan and Cavalier colonies in, in the states of America. In both cases, the Cavaliers failed and the Puritans succeeded. But in both cases, it has now become rather a question whether the success is not a failure itself a failure. In both cases, the Puritan won, the Cavalier lost. In America, the Puritan won in the 1860s, the Cavalier lost. And the English Civil War, the Puritan won, the Cavalier lost. But he's saying, is that not really a failure? In England, there is now at least as much grumbling against the politician as there ever was against the courtier. In other words, the abuse of the privilege of the parliament has become at least as unpopular as was ever the abuse of the prerogative of the king. In America, as in all industrialized countries, the exploitation of the industrial workers has called up all sorts of menacing suggestions of refusal to work or compulsion to work. In other words, America has lived to find the problem of white labor at least as difficult as the problem of black labor. And the nemesis of Sweating as terrible as the nemesis of slavery. The truth does not necessitate justification of the slave owners any more than a glorification of the Stuarts, but it does mean that there was more to be said for them than it has been fashionable to admit for at least 50 years. So is there something to be said for all these things? Is, was, was the result as bad as the disease? And this is something that would be heretical to say. He says at the beginning, this is heretical. What I'm going to say is heretical, but I'm going to do it anyways, because it needs to be said. And that from the first, the most intelligent men like Wentworth and Falkland in one case, and, or Lee and Lincoln in the other, felt that the alternative was something of a choice of evils. Some of them chose drastically, like Wentworth and Lincoln, some reluctantly and conscientiously, like Falkland and Lee. But all of them, in the thick of the conflict, saw the case for both sides, where one enlightened generation of response and respect can only manage to see one side. Our philosophers are often narrower than their fanatics, and summaries simplify more fatally than war cries. But we are being forced to reconsider our one-sidedness by the failures of our own side, on our own side. We do not need uh, to regard Charles I as a perfect statesman in order to doubt nowadays whether Parliament is a perfect instrument. 
We do not wish to go back to slavery because we are by no means clear about how we are to go on with proletarianism. It is enough to note that here that the voyage of the Mayflower is by no means ended. That ship which sailed out of the north in the 17th century has not yet really come home to any final harbor. Here's a critique again on moder modernity, on the modern world. We had all these things going on. It's not to say we need this old stuff. We don't want to bring that back. But was there some kind of critique in it culturally that would give us pause about modernity? Were people saying things that were not true about these fanatics on the one side that we needed to be at pause and be cautious about? Of course. And that's what Chesterton does in this essay and why I found it so fascinating and why culture matters. This is a great essay, and I'm glad uh, that the listener sent this to me uh, because um, I hadn't talked about Chesterton before, and it was a nice introduction if you don't know who G.K. Chesterton was or never heard of him before to go out and read more G.K. Chesterton. It's uh, worth your time. All right. So, hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you tomorrow. See you then.